0: This is Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. After anticipating a large victory for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, polling firms reassured poll watchers they would examine their methods and build better polls. In the lead up to the 2020 election, Polling aggregators, such as 538 predicted a Democratic blue wave that would see Joe Biden receive a popular vote for between 8 and 10 points, with a likely pickup of many new Senate and House seats for Democrats. Unfortunately, the 2020 predictions seem to be as inaccurate as those made in 2016, showing a presidential margin half the size predicted with strong Republican success in Congress. Are these most recent errors owed to the unusual circumstances of holding an election during a pandemic? Are they evidence of a bias in the polling community? Or is there something about the electorate itself, in culture or in demographic shifts, that make one party's votes more difficult to survey than another? Here to discuss the science of polling and explain what may have caused these most recent polling errors is Chase Harrison, senior preceptor at Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. He teaches courses in survey methodology and advises researchers at Harvard on survey design, sampling, and survey administration. Professor Harrison will share how he and his team work with pollsters and researchers to build the highest quality survey sets and how polling methods must adapt to changing technology and voter behavior. When we return, I'll be joined by Professor Chase Harrison. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Selvaggi, and I'm now joined by Harvard University professor Chase Harrison.
1: Welcome to the show, Chase. Well, thank you, Joe. Thank you, Joe. It's very glad to be here.
0: Well, uh, Chase, it's, uh, it's good to have you. Now, we've got the 2020 election behind us, and as one who studies polling and survey methodologies, how do you think the uh, polling
1: industry did this time around? Clearly, clearly, there were some states Um Wisconsin and Michigan, where where the polling and, and some others, where the polling was was consistently showing a, a, a somewhat to much greater margin for Joe Biden than, than we finally saw in the election results, um, and and there are other states where things were much closer. The national polls will probably be showing somewhat of 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 a bias. Uh, in 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 the Biden direction, but it's not clear how much there's still at the national level, a lot of votes that are that are that are being counted. So so we expect to see the gap between between what the polls predicted and where Biden currently is nationally clearly has happened is an unusual election. Um. We didn't. We didn't get a get a perfect forecast of who was likely likely to turn out, how people would vote, and and whether this is a problem with with the the methods of of estimating the the vote, and I should say whether this is a problem of, of of measuring voters or whether this is a problem of predicting which of the electorate is going to turn out to vote, or whether this is a problem of of misestimating, underestimating. Um, the choices of those people, or how much of it is is a turnout effect that that you know could have been caused by an election with with historically high male voting, first time male voting, um, with with concerns of a pandemic and voter turnout. It the big question in my mind is whether whether we need to think about. Different methods of measuring the population, or whether we need to try to focus more on better understanding how to predict voter turnout. I, I have a couple of other possibilities, but those are the two.
0: So I, I, I want to take a, a broader view of of surveying and polling in general. You do work, uh, you help uh, other researchers at Harvard to to understand how to you know get get the uh, sense of preferences uh, among populations. So uh, let's just set the table and say, okay, um, there's polling and predicting you, we're going to address that in our show, but what do we know? I mean, what are effective, uh, methods of, of finding preferences? I don't care if it's Coke versus Pepsi or, you know, uh, whatever it happens yeah. to be the methodologies for finding people's preferences. Is that, that's been around a while. What can you tell about us about that?
1: Well, it has been around a while and, and it's, it's sometimes a bit frustrating to me as someone who, who thinks of himself as primarily a survey researcher that, 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 that there's so much focus given to, to kind of survey accuracy and so forth around political polls when, when political polls are, are a, a very unique, different sort of thing than the typical survey method we use. So, so broadly what surveys are really good at is finding a defined population, uh, sampling people, interviewing people, collecting data from, from a defined population and estimating, estimating population statistics, what, what, what a statistician would call a point estimate. So, so, so if we think of things, the unemployment rate is an example of something we, we all focus on and use. It's a survey measure. Um, if we want to talk about The percentage of people in the united states or in massachusetts or in any other state who have health insurance we're getting that data from surveys you mentioned coke or pepsi if if coke or pepsi are are conducting a new a new a new um marketing campaign or otherwise want to understand something about their customers uh, the 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 population-based survey is is really the best way to do that and Mm -hmm. and and there have been some Challenges and changes, tremendous ones, in in the developed world, on um, how we how we do sampling, how we measure things. Uh, you know, we, there's been a shift from from doing in person samples to to telephone surveys to now now better better integrating web survey methods into into, into survey data collection. There are there are there are more hybrid approaches where where we're integrating observational data, big data, administrative data into into samples and other types of, of tools that come from surveys. But what the survey is really good at and is 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 capturing a population at a point in time and saying something about it. The problem with with pre-election polls is is it's it's really easy for me to 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 capture a population of Americans who are eligible to vote but 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 not all of those people do vote and and, and so i then have to have to figure out which of these people are going to be voting on election day and 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 of course if i do a study or a survey or a survey, you know, quite a bit prior to an election. I have to understand, you know, are they going to change their minds? Are they going to change their votes? If, if I interview someone and they tell me, tell me, I don't know how I'm going to vote. Yes, I'm definitely going to vote, but I don't know how I'm going to vote. I, I have to do something with that in order to have a pre-election forecast. And all of those are things which we don't encounter in, in other sorts of surveys. So, so that population-based method, if, if I'm trying to understand what Americans think about a particular issue, it's, it's, it's a survey is a great approach for, for sampling people and, and interviewing people and, and getting, getting opinions and attitudes, responses to questions about issues. And I don't have to worry about who's going to vote, who's not because I'm interested in all Americans. But, but when it comes to that predictive pre-election poll, I, I it brings in a bunch of specialized things namely trying to forecast who is going to turn out to vote um trying to trying to understand especially long time before an election are people's people's attitudes likely to change trying to trying to understand and even forecast are, are campaigns going to do things differently, which might cause people to change their their, their minds or their attitudes or their votes that, that I'm not accounting for here. And and the survey tool is really good at capturing a population at a point in time and measuring something. In it. So,
0: so I'd like to um, drill down into, I think what you're talking about is a, a sample population. And then of course you have um, some errors in those samples, right? So you want to take, a, I think, N should be something like 1,000 to have a plus or minus 3% uh, accuracy. Again, I'm throwing around um, generalized numbers. How do you know that 1,000 people is going to be predictive? Uh, Again, whether we're talking about a standard survey or a polling survey, how is it that you can take 1,000 people and have them represent millions of people? And where are the inherent errors and Perhaps again, going further, how can one avoid um, uh, those errors when we have a, again a thousand people representing a far greater number?
1: And, and, and the classic, classic illustration that we often use, just on the sampling side, how can a random sample of a thousand people represent hundreds of millions of people? Is, is you know, think about think about going to to you know a doctor who will take a blood test. And he doesn't, doesn't need to take all of your blood to be able to understand understand the characteristics of the blood in your body. He's taking a small sample and it's, it's just well mixed. Mm-hmm. So, so what we do know is that, is that by taking, taking samples of, of good samples of populations, but, but just in general, by taking samples, they're, they're fairly precise mathematical properties that we can use to draw an estimate. So, 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 so that that version of the sampling statistics, and it's the sort of thing if 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 Apple wants to find out how 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 good you know manufacturing is in 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 in, in a factory producing phones or what the error rate is, they don't they don't take all phones and, and test them until they break. They'll take a sample of phones and, and come up with an estimate. So the sampling part of things is is relatively straightforward. It's relatively precise. They're good good mathematical statistical models for that. What the types of errors that that we come about in surveys um, are, are a little bit different from the sampling. And I wanna, I wanna first of all, draw a distinction between what we sometimes talk about the external validity of our studies, the, the ability to generalize to a population and the internal validity or the questions we ask, whether they're accurately measuring what we want to measure. So let's, let's put aside the, the notion that I'm trying to measure something, um, you know, an attitude or an opinion or a self-report of something on the on the representation side of things, that external validity, it, it you first of all have to make sure that the the frame that you're sampling from is is an unbiased frame, is accurately reflective of the of the population. So so the example would be if if I do a telephone survey, I'm, I'm missing the small percentage of people who don't have have telephones. And then and then if we think of the practice of what it is to conduct a telephone survey, you know, we're also missing people who 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 you know and it's it's one of these things we see with technology, people increasingly moving to to texting or 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 messengers or Skype or Zoom or or other methods of communicating. So I I may have some group of people who don't don't get covered in my sample frame of, of telephones then then the bigger issue and the one that that you know is the the, the the gigantic elephant in the room is is many people don't respond to surveys. So so non-response. Who is responding or not responding to? To my survey, and that's an area where there's a great deal of concern. There's a great deal of focus because because it used to be that response rates were very, very high, quite high, typically, to good quality social science surveys. And these days, you know you're 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 to extremely large, extremely expensive public types of surveys. The the types of things we use to measure things like the unemployment rate, um, you know, you still have high response rates, which you get at astronomical cost. But but you have high response rates. But for the typical survey that that you know any of my colleagues will will do, or 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 you know, the typical academic study, the the we have have quite low response rates. And so then the question is, are we are we able to understand that and adjust for it? In in ways that 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 make the results that we have reflective of the underlying population estimate. And so that's where there is a lot of a lot of work that is being done now, you know, the good news is we we sometimes think of this as response, responders and non-responders, but but when you, you look at the behavior of, of of people, it's it's less that there are two groups of people, people who respond to surveys and people who don't. And and it's more that different different people have different propensities to respond to surveys. Different, so so there are very few of us who've responded to no surveys. Uh, very few of us who have including me and I'm a survey researcher who respond to all survey requests that we get so so then the question is can you can you take the 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 chase that 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 you know is responding to one survey and 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 adjust my 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 responses and attitudes and 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 well really you know adjust Model things out so that that I'm representative of the chases that that didn't respond to the survey, and
0: I'd like to drill down a little bit on that um, yeah. and say non-response is is something I suppose someone say I ha- I don't have time and slams down the phone, but also couldn't a non-responder and I'm sort of backing into this notion of of people not conveying their true intent meaning they respond but they don't respond in the way they don't accurately reflect their intention meaning they uh, it's not a non-response it's a, a less than honest response so I'm, I'm leading into the sort of the the myth now um almost mythical shy trump voter that perhaps wasn't captured he may have been the the chase who wanted to vote for trump may have answered that uh, uh um Yes. Uh, survey and may have said, no, you know, I, I haven't made up my mind when in fact you had. Is is there any evidence for these kinds
1: of non-response? Well, on the shy Trump voter, it, 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 there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence that they're shy Trump voters and just just the types of tests that people have done. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but let me step back a moment. The, 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 the way a survey researcher would think about that, there are different effects, but a social desirability bias. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as an example, if if I ask you, um, well, if I'm doing a survey of my students and I ask them how often do you cheat, on <laughs> right? I, people won't tell me. <laughs> and, and, Zero,
0: know. I'm guessing is the uh, is the uniform answer.
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. And so, and so, you know, survey researchers know about this and, and things that are embarrassing, illegal, uh, you, know, you know, socially undesirable. You see these effects. And and so we understand how to deal with these in the context of other surveys. One of the things that that increases the accuracy is to have self reports, rather than interviewer administered reports. So if I administer a survey and make sure that it's anonymous or, or, you know, give my students a a web survey they're answering things and, and and don't don't associate their names with it, and it's not me and my students, but it's a survey of Harvard students, we'll find more people who who will admit to cheating. Um, It it may not be perfectly accurate, but it's more, it's a difference. And and you can do this, there are other ways of people doing randomized response techniques. Um, So so there's a well-developed science for this. But on the self-reports, we do have web surveys that are self-administered, and we have interactive voice response these these so-called robopolls but really it's it's where you're either pushing a button which is the typical approach or you know voice recognition you're saying something and it's not a person it's a recording and and those sorts of polls you would expect would be have less of a shy trump effect because it's not somebody telling somebody else and in fact they don't and earlier this year the morning consult did a study where they they asked um, they randomly assigned people to have a telephone interview or a web interview and 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 there there were no differences in Trump's support between the two the pew did a study last summer they asked people would you you know be be how willing would you be to tell a friend over dinner and and Getting this—the this, exact wording wrong—but roughly, how willing would you be to talk about with friends or family who you're voting for? And, and the Trump supporters were actually more likely, a little bit, to to talk about who they were supporting than Biden supporters. So, so that's the evidence that we probably don't have a shy Trump effect in the extent that you have interviewers, you have you have respondents who are talking or responding to polls and really supporting Trump but saying that that they don't. Now now the, the the flip side of that, the other variant of the shy Trump voter, is is it that you have have a group of of defiant Trump voters or 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 otherwise or or just under under contacted or under under motivated Trump supporters who are systematically not responding to polls. In ways that that aren't captured by common demographic characteristics like education, race, age, but but just that that perhaps with four years of of, of you know a, a president who who often often is skeptical of, of things scientific and and like like surveys and people who are you know clearly skeptical of the media and openly skeptical to polls is that causing People to not respond. You know that's a that's a possibility, and I think if we talk about shy Trump voters, I would be looking there more than the people who respond to the poll but don't respond, or the people who are just just so skeptical of the enterprise of, of polling. I I don't think there's you know there's not a ton of evidence for that right now, but but that certainly is a, a, a Plausible hypothesis to for us to look at, and I think you will see people looking at that, at that more. The the classic reasons that people don't respond to surveys, and this was the problem in two thousand and sixteen, is it, it, it correlated with education? People with higher levels of education um, are more likely to to respond to polls. Uh, Younger people are less likely to respond to to polls. There are other other sorts of factors. And so what we do is we adjust for for those characteristics and and that typically brings estimates more in line with 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 true values of population to the extent that we can measure those. and 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 to understand this, people will often design studies where you you have a separate, some measure independent. Of the survey that that you know the true population value when you ask survey questions and look at look at how you get closer to the value. But, but so, so the the question is, would we be adjusting for this with education, it may be that we need more precise estimates, it may be that we don't have a a full set of variables that will 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 accurately adjust for this. I mean, the theory I've heard, I, I I don't think it's been you know sufficiently empirically tested, but but, you know, would you have had an effect where where, for example, after covid and after after people began teleworking and working from home, would you've maybe had cases where 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 the types of people who were working from home who tend to work in in professional jobs, tech, um, or the types of people who are, are unemployed and at home, people working in service jobs, um, are more likely to be supporting Biden. And people who are not working from home but continuing to work, people in manufacturing, transportation, other sorts of other sorts of fields, are they? You know, so would you be oversampling people based on something that is correlated with a Trump? Vote and and that you're you're not capturing those are those are very real questions. Those are the types of problems that that survey researchers always deal with when when looking at non-response. So and,
0: so I want to um, uh, d- dig deeper on that. So we are sort of looking for this: why did we you know not get it right even after having uh, learned from two thousand sixteen, theoretically learned and tried to adjust for that for two thousand twenty? Yet we have again, notwithstanding the fact we now have a new challenge called COVID but we got it wrong in very much the same way we got it wrong in 2016. So trying to drill down, I think you've you've outlined uh, the challenge of any pollster. uh, The data comes from people who answer polls, and those may be a different group, right? By virtue of their willingness to answer a poll, someone more educated might be more willing, uh, or their profession uh, in a time of COVID would lead them to be home near a phone rather than driving a truck, perhaps, right? And that that we're accounting for that as well, right? Um, how can, a, a uh, let's say, an information consumer uh, try to, um, let's say, tease out or um, uh, correct for those problems, assuming any one pollster uh, is vulnerable to one mistake or, or another? Is there any wisdom in, in looking towards polling aggregators, such as the 538, Nate Silver's 538, where they sort of look all over the country, look at all the different polls, and sort of uh, average them out with the hope of of um, uh, eliminating the influence of outliers and essentially looking for the wisdom of the crowd. Is there any wisdom in uh, in in looking towards polling aggregators rather than individual polls?
1: Well, I the the aggregators do do a, a good job on the political side of things, the pre-election polling side of things, of of controlling for the electoral college versus versus um, Single estimates and single votes, so so they're they're at a minimum disentangling you know polls in Florida versus polls in Michigan and looking at consistent versus non consistent, um, you know possibilities in terms of determining an outcome. The the and the polling aggregators uh, have also in terms of forecasting presidential elections, and this is something that doesn't have anything to do with polling, um, increasingly incorporated things like. Models. So in, in, in the world of political science, there are all sorts of ways of forecasting election outcomes based on economic performance, based on incumbency, um, based on other sorts of things that don't have anything to do with polls. Sure. And, and so they they, you know, they, to the extent they can incorporate those, I think that's a great benefit for people trying to forecast an election. The, the concern that I have on the pre-election side is there's an extraordinary diversity of polls. And, and in, pre, in election years, there, there's a real incentive for, for people to publish lots of polls because they get in the press and they get, get, get their 15 minutes of fame, so to speak. They, and, and, and there's not a lot of, a lot of um, concern. You, you get put in these aggregators anyway, so you got your press. So there's an incentive to do lots of cheap polls, and and you have people who are incentivized to do polls who don't regularly do polls, who who only do them in in a couple of months before an election, and and so you have a diversity of methods, but you have a lot of polls that really aren't doing the types of things that good researchers do. So so in terms of in terms of looking at polls, I tend to think. Um, you know, CNN has a has a much more exclusive set of aggregations they do, where they only look at good polls, so to speak. But they only look at polls that are done by people who regularly do polls who are transparent about the methodology. Who who it's not necessarily only only probability based polls because they will include some often internet polls, but but they they take great care to include people who are really going through a set of of you know, really being very transparent about their methods and who are taking some care to adjust for potential biases. So, so I think the the first thing I would think about as a consumer is, is, is and there's a series of questions, you know, CNN has published the questions they ask to be included in that. The American Association for Public Opinion Research has a transparency initiative, it's people, you know, they have to be good but you have to be transparent about what you do so you know the first question is are these people who are members of the this transparency initiative are they people who CNN would consider good are they are they organizations that regularly do polls both both election and non-election are they they people who who spend some time and care and money do they employ professionals do they do they do they do they, do they do they conduct validation studies after elections do they do they put care into that so so taking a look at at the difference between the really you know high quality professional transparent open pollsters versus Versus people who are are spinning something up on a robopole, you know, real quickly and measuring something. I I tend to give a lot more weight to those those strong, um, you know, high quality polls. Now now I would say that that the, you know some of the aggregators try to do that, but it's not clear that that they're able to draw distinctions. And in some cases, you really have just massive collections of of. You know, not so good polls, or or polls of even unproven quality compared to small numbers of good polls. So, so
0: can can I ask then, um, if there are good polls out there, good quality polls? Um, again, I'm my my observations are based on. Again, looking through 538's aggregation, and as you say, they incorporate many different components that to color the results. But I saw not just a large Biden lead of eight to 10 points, but a consistent Biden lead that really even predates, uh, it goes back to January, meaning it didn't seem volatile, didn't seem very affected by current events, right? Uh, um, when good news happened or bad news happened, it, it seemed to be fairly consistent, and it was for that reason that I thought going into the polls there would be more reliable outcomes, given that you know it wasn't merely volatility. That if you had you took a different poll on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, if, if each was different, I could understand a big difference in the difference between polling and outcome, given both consistent and consistent um, uh, uh, favoring of Biden by substantial uh, landslide territory. How does one account for that, or how does a you know a typical Information consumer account for that. Where, where, you know, in twenty twenty four, where where are you going to start looking for uh, beyond your own polls? And we'll talk about your poll, uh, you know, with the IOP soon. But um, where where can a a consumer look for quote unquote a good poll?
1: Well, I think I think there may have been um, an expert. If you look at if you look at five thirty eight or some of the other aggregators. Um, you know, you see, you see, there was there was they, they never forecast 100 percent certainty for Joe Biden. There was always a range of things. And and so they said there was maybe a 10 percent chance. I mean, of, so twelve, twelve 12, percent for Trump and 88. For, yeah. OK, great. Well, and, and, and Biden <laughs> won. So 88 percent of the 88 times out of 100, you would have the <laughs> sure. result. They it got was it. Not, huh? right. it was not a close. It, it was not really a close race in that electoral college. And that in that there, there are several states of degrees of freedom, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, you you look at the range of electoral votes cast, I think on average. you should have you should have seen Biden with, with a few more, but', but he's, he's also not on the the, the, the far lower end of his, his range. He's right in the range of predictions. So if we think of this, if we think of it's not quite the same, but how can a sample of a thousand people represent a, a bunch of people? How can a sample of many polls, you know, accurately represent? What's going to happen in an election, and 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 the truth is that that you're never going to focus on you know the 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 median outcome or the mean outcome. You always want to think of there being a range of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so so my view on this election is is things were on the range in the range of of plausible outcomes that we would look at. I. I, there were probably some cases where polls were consistently, I mean, there were some cases where it seems that the pre-election polls were consistently off. There were also some cases, for example, um, Arizona, Texas, uh, okay. you know, where Minnesota even is a case where the polls were I- I- extremely accurate. So, so, so you know, some places will be off, some places will have a Biden um you know, some places will have a, a, a bias. When I say bias, I just mean a you know statistical, you know, consistent statistical difference in one direction that's not accounted for by that that variability. But 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 you'll see there are different different biases in mm-hmm. that that there'll be some polls that will you know be overly optimistic for Biden, some polls that will be overly optimistic for Trump. And those will largely cancel out. In this case, they there were, you know. A few more cases where polls were overly optimistic for Biden and Trump. So yeah. so but I don't find that terribly outside of the range that that I expected. I wasn't surprised by this outcome. I, I would have would have thought that that you know, a Biden victory would be. A little stronger, but I also would say that I th- I was more likely to think that two weeks before the election mm-hmm. than the day of the election, when we were mm-hmm. seeing some other information, um, you know, where the candidates were campaigning uh, was something. None of the none of the I know election pollsters that I talked to or election strategists seem to think that that campaign visits. you know, know, regardless of the public health wisdom of them, that, that campaign visits tend to boost somebody by a couple of points. For a couple of days in the media markets where they occur. That's the classic strategy which Trump followed this year, traveling all over the media markets in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, especially. I mean, he was doing, I don't know how many rallies a day. The traditional Before wisdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Traditional wisdom is that would give him a boost of a couple of points for a couple of days in those markets. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody accounted for that. Um, And, and, you know, maybe it wasn't a good idea, but could that have had an impact on the vote independent of the polls? Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things, you know, that that caused me to be less certain, or, you know, that, that, that caused me to have more skepticism that you would see a heavy Biden victory on election day, but it wasn't anything that the forecasters were accounting for, but he's doing lots of visits. It's COVID, so we actually don't know what impact they will have but 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 the, the conventional wisdom is that would motivate a certain base that otherwise might not be motivated mm-hmm. um, the states that the the campaigns were campaigning in is suggest very suggestive of where they see the race so so in those ways i think for 2020 we have to keep in mind you know we, we need to understand better what drove turnout in 2020 we mm-hmm. need to understand whether there were turnout differences based on COVID, were there people, for that matter, who showed up in 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 line to vote and and just saw long lines and were a little worried about public health and didn't vote? Um, I, you know, it. it
0: yeah, it, it remains to be seen uh, as the dust settles. That's right. And now we had two record. Uh, we had both Biden and Trump getting record amounts of, uh, uh, of votes. Uh, we had 160 million votes, uh, a new record for the United States. Have you done analysis both? Sort of in the polling um, uh, pre-election to measure, you know, we've been talking much about preference, but not as much about intensity. Do you capture intensity? And you know, the likely were you forecasting a record turnout, Uh, and then afterward, uh, is the voter in a record turnout just more of the same, or is there some new person that steps into the political ring once uh, intensity is is broad-based and 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 you know, ubiquitous? Uh, is there any sort of way to understand the difference between um, who shows up if there's 120 million votes versus 160 million votes?
1: Everybody knew, it appeared by all the measures, turnout was going to be exceptionally high this year. I, in terms of being a record, it's, it's hard to say because there were so many variables that were different. Um, so we know that when places, and we've seen this in places like Colorado and Oregon that have moved to vote by mail. but in general, when when jurisdictions make voting easier, you see turnout increase. So this year there was there was you know unprecedented vote by mail, early voting. those are the types of of administrative, institutional changes that we know lead to greater turnout. Um, there was was clearly a great deal of motivation on on, on the Biden side is, is was apparent very early on in the polls, but but is as apparent by by the observed turnout also on the Trump side. So 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 Trump brought in new voters, Biden brought in new voters. Um, you know, those, that that was really really something that 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 you know kind of leads to the record turnout is that it's not one-sided. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, especially in off year elections, you, you see one side being more motivated than the other. Um, in, in, so in a, in a, in the, in the 2018 elections of the 2022, you often see, see the side that lost the presidency previously being more motivated and that leads to a differential turnout.
0: Or, or the side that, that wins is more complacent, right? From, from.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. We'll see if that plays out this year, but it ordinarily <laughs> plays out. The, the, but, but then in the low propensity voters, new voters, first time voters, people who hardly ever voted, it, it, it's really a question whether they turn to, it, turn into regular voters or not. Often they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they do. It, voting becomes a habit. The the you know it takes people voting several times before they they become a regular voter, and 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 so I think it'll be a real question on the part of the parties um, how much they can mobilize and continually mobilize these new new voters. If if I mean if you look at the the, the national exit polls asked a question of the Trump voters, "Was your vote?" you know, primarily for Trump or was it primarily for the Republicans? And you see extremely large numbers of Trump voters. I mean, 50, 60% was said it was primarily for Trump. So, so there were clearly a lot of Trump voters who were very motivated by him. And so then the question becomes if he's not on the ballot, it, we don't know what that will look like and how involved he will be in politics. He's not a regular Republican politician, but but the question, for Republicans, is, is can you take that the the new infrequent voters who really turned out for Trump and voted for Trump and not the Republicans? Can you translate that into regular votes for yourself? And you know, on the Biden side, and the the Democratic side, it will be can you take people who are really motivated to 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 vote against Donald Trump? Can you turn them into people who who are motivated to vote for Democrats? Can you translate that down the? And so those are those are the real questions that that will happen. It's it's also true that that at that level, it's you know the the you know the skyline. We're often looking at we're often looking at things like media and ads and and polls, a very reserved you know removed type of measure. But in fact, um, voter mobilization, voter turnout, voter registration are things that. That are incredibly important to to seeing and to to continuing to take new voters and 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 incorporating them into into the political system. And so, I just think okay. those are very much unknowns. I,
0: I, I want to get into. Uh, we're getting close to the end of the show. I want to talk about the IOP briefly at the very end because that's that's the fun part. We can enjoy that talking about uh, working with the students at the college. Uh, One sort of uh, darker question I have about polling is, uh, I won't call it weaponizing polling, but um, I'm referring to push polling, right, Um, uh, where polls are used to influence the outcome of elections. I don't know if your, your research goes into this, but, you know, for our listeners, a push poll is essentially calling someone up and saying, you know, would you vote for candidate X if you knew he, you know, Hurt puppies or something like this, right? In, in other words, trying to change opinion with polls. Do you do any research on this?
1: Well, it's it's I I I, I don't. I'm familiar with with a lot of the industry concerns, and there are that the push poll is something that that that. So the the main professional organization of of public opinion researchers, the American Association for Public Opinion Research, is you know kind of always has early action committees and will come out very strongly against the sort of push poll that you are talking about. And those sorts of things do pop up and they tend to be, they tend to be, um, they often turn against candidates. You know, it, at the last minute, will somebody try a push poll in some weird primary yes, and there will be a lot of pushback against it. And, 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 and people don't do that if you're trying to get a small number of voters to change their, their, their minds in a multi-party, you know, primary candidate, campaign that's one of these kind of underground tactics that can work. It you don't see a lot of them, but what is much more concerning really, and there are two variations of this. There's there's what's called some you know sometimes calling sugging and frugging but 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 fundraising under the guise of polling or selling under the guise of polling where where people will conduct a poll and you sometimes see these even from from you know members of congress or otherwise who will who will look like they're asking a poll and it's really trying to encourage you to be engaged with them or or and and we have to distinguish between just a questionnaire versus versus something that people think is a survey but if it becomes difficult for people to disentangle what is what is a research survey a scientific survey from something that's a voter motivation attempt or a fundraising attempt or you know um then it means that people are less likely to respond to us people are less likely to trust the results that we put out
0: yes indeed Uh, we're going to have to have that be our final uh, answer we are running out of time for this episode i want to thank you very much for your time today chase this has been a very informative episode we've been able to go deep on why polling um, may have gotten it wrong, but also what the what the limits of polling are and 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 its ability to predict the future. So I wanna thank you very much for your time and I really do appreciate your candor and your expertise.
1: Well, thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure to be here.
0: This has been another episode of Hubwonk. I'm your host, Joe Salvaggi. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways you can support us. You can subscribe to Hubwonk. You can offer a five-star rating, and you can offer a review. Of course, we would value your effort to share us with friends. If you have ideas for future shows or comments about Hubwonk, you're welcome to send those to me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Hubwonk is a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.